Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball Daily, the podcast we talk about baseball 365 days a year. Unless it's a leap year, then I'm going to do another one. I've been doing this every single day since October 24th, 2012. It is now the 22nd day of August, 2016, and I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan, Please call me Sully. I'm recording this from a Sully Baseball studio in Burbank, California. The birthplace of former California Angels third baseman Doug DeSensei. And Doug DeSensei uh, came up as a member of the Baltimore Orioles and was the heir to third base to Brooks Robinson and was not embraced by Baltimore fans because he had the audacity to not be Brooks Robinson. They say, hey, are you Brooks Robinson? No, I'm Doug DeSensei. Well, F you, we love Brooks Robinson. That's fine, but Brooks Robinson's 80. And so, even though DeSensei was a fine player and time caught up to Brooks Robinson... Uh, he never got embraced by the Baltimore fans, I think, the way he maybe should have. And then he came over to California, became a fan favorite. Uh, damn nearly played in a World Series with the Angels in 82 and 86. And there was a little weird sort of um, ending to his career. His final baseball card was the 1988 Topps card where he he's finished he finished his career in 87. So his final card was an 88 card. That's how it works. And it was an 88 tops card and it's with the the picture I'm doing this from memory. But his picture was him apparently on at third base as a base runner. He's a, and he looks like he's looking up to see if I'm guessing a sack fly. And it says, Angels, third baseman, Doug DeSensis. And in the corner, on tiny little Helvetica font is something that they they do from time to time when a card went into printing. And it said, now with Cardinals. And if you look at the back of his baseball cards, it says, Orioles, 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 for a bunch of years. Angels, 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 for a bunch of years. At the end, he played like six games with the Cardinals. And what had happened, I don't know if you remember this, in 1987, even though the Mets clearly had the best team in the National League in terms of talent coming off of the World Series, they didn't win the division. At the time, they shared the division with the St. Louis Cardinals. And with, by ways that I don't understand, and a lot of people attribute it to burnout from 1986, the Cardinals won the division. And they were, they had a great year from Jack Clark until he got hurt. They had solid years from their pitchers that they, until they got. They had so many injuries on this team, and they came limping into the playoffs. And they wound up beating the Giants in a thrilling seven-game series, and then almost won the World Series. Uh, they lost Game Seven to the Minnesota Twins, and uh, there you go. But one of the many injuries they had, they had the the corners of their infield were. Terry Pendleton and Jack Clark, who were both wonderful players that year, and they and and they were both hurt for the postseason. And Jack Clark only made one 
pinch hit appearance in the entire playoffs. And Pendleton was hurt, and they acquired Doug DeSensei to just be a, a, a human being, to stand at third base with ability to play third base, um, and which he did to finish the season up. And I remember that the Cardinals tried to see if they could put him on the postseason roster um, to say, look, we need a third baseman. We can't play Terry Pendleton. Can we please play Doug DeSensei? And the rules are, no, you have to be on the playoff roster. You have to be on the roster by the last day of August. And I think that's a good rule. Because if you didn't have that, then what you'd basically have is if you're a contending team, like say the Cubs or the Nationals, you know, a team that you know is going to get in, you can just wait to the last day of the season and a bunch of teams who are about to lose free agents and probably not be able to afford them, you can just, you know, load up on them. Like, oh, I'll get this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. And then you have a team that doesn't even resemble the team. But, yeah, when I think of Doug DeSensei, I think of you know what? if the Cardinals had acquired him a month earlier, he meant he would have been on the World Series team. Why did I bring all that up? I don't know. It's like Doug DeSensei. And that brought up some memories. All right, let's talk about the present a little bit. And some, something that I'm thinking about in terms of how baseball has changed, right around that time in the mid to late 80s, is making me think about something that is going on now. Let me let me tie it all together. Um, <clears throat> Sunday Night Baseball, Mets, Giants, good solid game. Uh, Samarjda, whose name I'm still not 100% sure if I'm pronouncing correctly, took a no-hitter deep into the game. Uh, he let up a hit, then let up the home run to Cespedes, and that was all the offense in the game. It was two bagel, Mets one. Frustrating loss for the Giants, uh, who are, fell back a half game to Los Angeles. I still don't get how Los Angeles is in first place, but you're going to see that the Giants have, I believe, eight or nine games left with Los Angeles, and they play each other this week. So if you don't like me talking about the Giants, hey, you do a baseball podcast. It's going to be a critical, critical week for the Dodgers and for the Giants. You know, could be tipping the entire 2016 season uh, at least a big chunk of it could happen this week. But <clears throat> Samarst had a chance to throw a no-hitter, took it deep. You know, once you get to the last third of the game, you know, you think, hey, we got a shot at this. We got a shot at this. But I was thinking about something. Now, this doesn't necessarily apply to the 2016 Giants, but I still thought about it. That there is an element of bravado, machismo, that sort of matador arrogance, that sort of standing on top of a mountain about the no-hitter. The no-hitter is an accomplishment which will always have a tremendous amount of weight. Now, you could argue that there have been some games that have not been no-hitters that are more effective pitching games than a no-hitter. I saw a game where... Uh, Madison Bumgarner let up a single hit and he didn't walk anybody and he struck out a ton of players uh, and you could certainly make the compelling case that that game was a better pitched game 
than, say, Edwin Jackson's no-hitter, where he walked a ton of batters and, and was wild and, and was probably should have been taken out of the game. He threw a 1,000 pitches. There was a game that, that Pedro Martinez struck out a crap load of, of batters, and he let up one hit. It was a home run, but he, it was, I forget the final score, but it was ridiculous, and the Red Sox won that game. And I think the only thing that was the difference between um, a no-hitter or not was like a, a, a home run he let up in the middle innings. Now, that game's not, you, that game doesn't even get logged as a shutout. But I would put that game up as a better pitched game than most no-hitters. But in the end, it doesn't matter. Because no-hitters are what we remember. There's something sexy about that. There's something memorable about that. And it is always looked upon as an individual accomplishment. When you have, you know, when you're a Hall of Famer winds up throwing a no-hitter... Seaver threw one, and Bob Gibson threw one, and Marischal, of course, Koufax threw all of his, and Nolan Ryan threw all of his, and Randy Johnson threw a couple of them. You know, I mean, some great pitcher, you know, Clemens never threw a no-hitter. Pedro never officially threw a no-hitter. He threw nine perfect innings one game, but he went into extra innings. You know, Greg Maddox, who's probably the best pure pitcher I've ever seen in my life, never threw a no-hitter. And you know, then there have been some weird ones who have thrown no-hitters. You know, Bud Smith threw a no-hitter. Hideo Nomo threw two. You know, uh, Philip Umber threw a perfect game. That's weird. You know, so the which ones get to be listed as no-hitters? You know, Valenzuela threw a no-hitter. And that's, you know, that's not surprising because he was a wonderful pitcher and an ace. But he threw it towards the end of his time with the Dodgers when he clearly was... No longer an effective pitcher. Tim Lincecum threw two no-hitters in two of the worst years he had with the Giants. Not in his Cy Young years, but in his declining years. It's weird. It's hard to predict. And those moments become super sexy moments in because it is that. It's Tim Lincecum's no-hitter. It's Fernando Valenzuela's no-hitter. It's Philip Umber's no-hitter. And it becomes that moment. Earlier in this year, the Dodgers... God, I can't remember his name. I should remember. The, the guy making his big league debut, and he was throwing, took a no-hitter into the eighth, and Dave Roberts re- removed him from the game. And people said, it's terrible, it's terrible. He had a chance to throw the no-hitter. He had a chance to throw the no-hitter. And I started thinking about something. Why would it have been terrible if they removed him and a reliever completed the no-hitter? I thought that when Samarjda went six, I said, well, if the Giants had a deeper bullpen this year, what if he gave it to the bullpen and you had a comp- you had a combined no-no? And what started to hit me was the idea of a combined no-hitter. You would think in this day and age of specialized relievers would be a more common occurrence in the annals of Major League Baseball. When you have a super deep bullpen, and you've seen teams win with super deep, like last year, Kansas City. A few years ago, the Red Sox had a super deep bullpen. 
year before that, San Francisco had an incredibly deep bullpen. You know, all those years with Rivera anchoring the bullpen and the bridge to Rivera, you know, Stanton, Nelson, Graham Lloyd, Ramiro Mendoza, all those people who were terrific relievers and then, you know, it became lights out. Or, of course, I brought up the... Uh, uh, the Cardinals in the in the 80s, they had a wonderful bullpen, but soon after that, La Russa figured out, we'll have Eckersley pitch the ninth, Honeycutt pitch the eighth, Gene Nelson pitch the seventh, some combination of Kurt Young or Todd Burns pitch the sixth. You would have thought that there would be a lot of combined no-hitters because you're seeing bullpens, quality pitchers, throwing out of the bullpen in ways they didn't used to. It used to be if you were a reliever, you were someone who just couldn't make it as a starter. And while there still is some truth to that, you do see some pitchers who are groomed as relievers, and you do see people who have incredible talent coming out of the bullpen, out of some of them out of the, the, the middle innings. You know, it's only recently that Andrew Miller, who's a wonderful pitcher, became a closer, but you're seeing middle relievers on the all-star team. So with that in mind, you would think there would be a point where it's like, okay, you gave us six innings. This pitcher's going to go a one, two, three inning. This pitcher's going to throw a one, two, three inning. This pitcher's going to throw a one, two, three inning. Boom, you've got a combined no-hitter. There's a sort of weird stigma to that. Oh, it's a combined no. Those are weird. Because you want the pitcher on the mound as the maestro. He started it, you're going to end it. But that's a weird machismo. Because in the end, a no-hitter is not an individual achievement. You need to make... Remember the brilliant catch in center field when Mark Burley threw one of his no-hitters? And every no-hitter, there's a play that's terrific. And every no-hitter, there's a defensive gem like, oh, he made the diving catch and saved the no-hitter. Hunter Pence did that for Tim Lincecum a few years ago. You know, the, there's part of a no-hitter is the brilliance that the pitcher is throwing, but also how the rest of the team comes around it. There's a ton of pressure on the whole team during a no-hitter because you don't want to be the schmuck who doesn't make the play. Oh, there's a ball in the gap. If I let it drop, the no-hitter's over. I have to catch it. It's not the pitcher running out of center field. So it is a team effort. So you would think that, yes, the pitcher threw the no-hitter. The pitcher got credited with the no-hitter. But it isn't really an individual accomplishment. You know, that's the no-hitter moments that people recognize uh, most of when it ends with a strikeout. And, yeah, that is the sexiest moment. But then again, that's also a lot of credit going to the catcher as well. Jason Varitek caught four no-hitters. But if you have some of these specialized bullpens, you would start to think that being part of a no-hitter would be a point of pride of some of these bullpens. Then you say, hey, yeah, yeah, we're there. We threw three. We're part of three no-hitters. And you have those pictures when you see after a no-hitter a no being thrown of the pitchers all kind of each like holding a ball out. I've grown to like the combined no-hitter. And part of the reason is, is you get to see names of people 
associated with a no-hitter that you would you wouldn't normally think of. I mean, the there was a no-hitter thrown by the A's in 1975 towards the end of the year, and Vita Blue started it. Glenn Abbott, Paul Lindblad, and Raleigh Fingers were all part of it. They got Raleigh Fingers as the Hall of Fame. Whether or not you believe Raleigh Fingers is a Hall of Famer, and you could make an argument either way about that, I have no problem with Raleigh Fingers being in the Hall of Fame, but I have no problem with you know anyone other than Tom Yawkey being in the Hall of Fame. But there, he's part of a no-hitter. When you list people through no-hitters, he's on the roll call. I mean, Mark Langston's first game with the Angels, he threw a no-hitter over seven innings, and then Mike Witt finished it off. We talked about the Angels earlier. There you go. Langston introduced himself to the Angels with a big way, and Mike Witt, who was their ace for a while, gets his name in there, too. You know, Mike Flanagan won a Cy Young Award, but his only time listed in the no-hitterville was as a middle reliever on a combined one. You know, I love that there was one game where Roy Oswalt had to leave the game because of an injury against the Yankees in 2004, and Oswalt, Pete Monroe, Kurt Silas, Brad Lynch, Octavio Dotel, and Billy Wagner completed the game, and it was a complete, it was a, a no-hitter from six pitchers. You know, there was one that was done with the Mariners a few years ago, where the Lucas Lutich, Lutich, I don't even know how to pronounce his damn name, Brandon League, Stephen Pryor. And you list people who have thrown no-hitters. I'm not going to list Greg Maddox. I'm going to list Stephen Pryor. And then Cole Hamels and Jake Dickman and Ken Giles and Jonathan Papelbon did a combined one two or three years ago. I like when you include a reliever in the roll call. I like when you include them in a moment of glory. For some of these middle relievers, like some of the ones I just listed, Francisco Barrios is another one, that there's like, okay, you would not normally have been associated with a no-hitter, but now you are. And I think if we remove some of the, you know, the machismo, and we remove some of the, well, you need to, you need to, you need to finish what you start. Why? First of all, wouldn't it be better to throw the no-hitter? And secondly, what if that becomes a point of pride? Like, yeah, I was part of it. Give some more of the glory. For everyone I just left, Kirk Sarlus is part of a no-hitter. That's not likely. He gets to finish his career with that and gets to be part of a proud moment. I like combined no-hitters. I like spreading the wealth. I like saying, yeah, here's a bone of glory. Let's not hog it for one person. Yeah, more than one name is associated with a no-hitter. That's always going to be the case. Granted, if someone's totally dominating, then all right, let's see it through. I like no-hitters anyway. And yeah, I get why throwing a no-hitter is so cool. I do. I get why throwing multiple no-hitters, Jake Arrieta recently, is really, really cool. But do you know what? I see the value of sharing the glory. And so I wonder, as bullpens get more specialized and more talented arms are thrown in there, if we're going to see that become something in the future, going, yeah, yeah, 
We're going to try to throw a no-hitter. You're seven innings in. I know you're pitching great. Thanks a lot. Now we're going to try to complete this thing. Something I wouldn't mind seeing. And I'm sure a lot of other middle relievers wouldn't mind seeing it either. Who owned baseball yesterday? Nolan Arenado got a couple of homers. Rockies are, well, they're, they're not really in it, but they're not really out of it. Noah Syndergaard, as I mentioned before, pitched a great game for the Mets, who are trying to hang on. It's not pretty. Uh, Justin Upton, homer twice against my Red Sox. And Dallas Keuchel uh, pitched well for the Astros, who are still hanging on the outside of the AL wildcard. Half wobs. Jeff Samarjda, mentioned before, took a no-hitter deep, but alas, got the loss. Addison Russell homer twice. Andrew Benatendi uh, got uh, a triple and a double. And Marcus Stroman pitched well for the Blue Jays, but they fell short. So if you're keeping score at home, Nolan Arenado, Noah Syndergaard, Justin Upton, Dallas Keuchel, Addison Russell, Marcus Stroman, Andrew Benatendi, and Jeff Samarjda all own baseball. And guess what? Do you also own baseball? My spell check for getting through Syndergaard. Keichel, Arenado, Samarjda, Benatendi. Don't think I didn't quadruple check every one of those names when I typed them in. Uh, you can see the up-to-date listings of who owns baseball at MLBReports.com. Go to SullyBaseball.com. Like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. You can be old school. Send me an email at info at SullyBaseball.com. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. This has been the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast, spreading the wealth. On the 22nd day of August 2016, I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Do you know what? You can call me Sully.